From the New York Institute for the Humanities, I'm Melanie Rahek. In October of 1977, Susan Sontag delivered one of the Institute's five James lectures for that year. Her topic was illness as metaphor. She explored the truth that it was no longer possible, as she wrote, to take up one's residence in the kingdom of the ill, unprejudiced by the lurid metaphors with which it has been landscaped. Though she didn't directly reference it, she was being treated for breast cancer at the time. The lecture was published in 1978, first as a series of essays in the New York Review of Books, and then as a book. It went on to become one of Sontag's best-known pieces of writing. Illness is the night side of life, another citizenship. Everyone who was born holds dual citizenship in the kingdom of the well and in the kingdom of the sick. Although we all prefer to use only the good passport, sooner or later, each of us is obliged to emigrate at least for a spell to that other kingdom. I'm not going to talk tonight about what it is really like to inhabit the kingdom of the ill, but about the fancies and prejudices which haunt that other citizenship. That is, I'm not going to talk about real geography, but about stereotypes of national character. My subject is not physical illness, but the use of physical illness as metaphor. And the point of this lecture, entitled Illness as Metaphor, is that illness is not a metaphor, and that the most desirable way of regarding illness is the one least encumbered by, most purified of, most resistant to metaphoric thinking. Yet it is hardly possible to take up one's residence in the kingdom of the ill outside the metaphoric terms by which it has been defined in the culture. It is toward a clarification of those metaphors and a liberation from them that I dedicate this inquiry. I want to center the discussion around two diseases which were or are thought to be unmentionable, tuberculosis and cancer. Now, several hypotheses could be offered for the taboo that once surrounded people with TB and still surrounds people with cancer. With TB, it could be explained by the fear of contagion, but no medical evidence suggests that cancer is contagious. Nevertheless, it is felt to be morally contagious by most people and often does produce behavior of avoidance on the part of relatives and friends, just like a contagious disease. Perhaps there's a tendency to regard all unexplained illnesses as contagious whether they are or not. Unlike the great epidemic diseases of the past, like plague, cholera, typhus, and so on, TB and cancer are frightening because however great their frequency in a given population, they remain individual illnesses, mysterious arrows that can strike anyone. Cholera, for example, is a disease that touches each person as a member of an afflicted community. Uh, TB and cancer, however great their frequency, are not social diseases, but diseases that isolate one from the community. One has been singled out. Therefore, they seem even more frightening than the great epidemic diseases because their occurrence seems so arbitrary, which is, I suggest, only to say that they were not understood. For it was as long as the mechanism of TB was not understood that it was referred to as a mysterious, insidious stealing away of a life. 
And now, it, for some time, it has been cancer's turn to be the disease that doesn't knock at your door first before it enters. Cancer fills the role of a disease experienced as a mysterious secret invasion and will continue to do so until one day the etiology of cancer is understood as well as that of TB is now. The horror inspired by a disease thought to be not curable and fatal, TB in the last century, cancer now, is perhaps a new emotion. Perhaps it's only possible to feel that kind of horror since the early 19th century when the very idea of medicine started to be transformed. That is to say, from being aid, medicine now promised cure, promised to make everyone an exception, promised that all diseases could be cured. But there were two diseases that not only seemed intractable to cure for a long time, but seemed particularly frightening by their very nature. In the 19th century, to learn that one had TB was to hear a sentence of death, as today in the popular imagination, cancer equals death. A tremendous fear surrounded TB in the last century with frequent concealment of the nature of the disease from patients and after their death from their children, altogether comparable to the fear that still surrounds cancer, a fear that's so great that in Western Europe, in various Western European countries, it's the rule for doctors to share a cancer diagnosis with the patient's family and not the patient. And even in America, where in the last few years there's much more candor about cancer, if not about death, bills and routine communications from a cancer hospital are mailed to the patient's home address in unmarked envelopes on the assumption that the matter may be a secret from the patient's family. And there is a federal law about uh, what government, what people who work for the government may or may um, not be required to testify about in front of any court or congressional committee. It includes only six things. One of them is officials may not be obliged to testify about military secrets and a number of other items that you can well imagine, and they may not be obliged to testify that they are under cancer treatment. It's the only disease mentioned and officially protected in this law about official secrets. In part, the secrecy, I think, does stem from um, the modern attitude toward dying. That is, dying itself has come to be viewed in advanced industrial societies as a shameful, unnatural thing. As dying itself has come under a kind of taboo, so has that disease which, in the popular imagination, has become a synonym for death. That, too, has come under prescription and a rule of secrecy, so that the impulse not to tell the cancer patient what disease he or she has is identical with the modern conviction that one should hide from someone the fact that he or she is dying, and that the best death is one that happens without the person being aware. That is to say, the refusal of cancer is a refusal of death. Nevertheless, I don't think that the rule of secrecy can be entirely or even mostly explained by the idea that the disease is fatal. Someone who has had a coronary is at least as likely to die of a heart condition, as it's called, within a few years after the coronary, as someone who has gotten cancer is likely to die from cancer. But no one thinks of concealing the truth about his or her condition from a cardiac patient. There's nothing shameful about a heart attack. Their cancer is concealed from patients not just because the disease is or is thought to be a death sentence, but because it's felt to be obscene in the original sense of the word obscene, meaning ill-omened, abominable, disgusting, indecent, offensive.
What inspires the dread and secrecy is finally not that the course of the illness, once TB, now cancer, usually leads to death. It's in the values encapsulated in the discourse of both diseases. Cardiac disease implies a mechanical failure. It has no demonic overtones. But both TB and cancer have been demonized by means of their leading metaphors, consumption and invasion. These metaphors imply living processes of a particularly resonant and fearful kind. And very large dreads shared by an entire culture are bound up in these metaphors. According to the OED, the word consumption was used in English as a synonym for pulmonary tuberculosis as early as 1398. John of Trevis wrote, when the blood is made thin, so followeth consumption and wasting. But the early understanding of cancer evokes the same kind of process. The OED gives us the earliest literal sense of cancer, anything that frets, corrodes, corrupts, or consumes slowly and secretly. That is, both early notions of the diseases involve the, involve the image of the body being consumed. The earliest images of TB are consuming wasting away. The earliest images of cancer are corroding, corrupting, and consuming. Conversely, the earliest meaning, uh, earliest image of a cancer is, of course, a growth, a lump, or protuberance, hence the name inspired by the lines of veins that cross-radiate from the tumor, like a crab. But the etymology of the word tuberculosis suggests that in the early stage of thinking about the disease, there was something of the same image. Tuberculosis comes from the Latin tuber, which means bump, swelling, and tuberculosis means a morbid swelling, protuberance, projection, or growth. Thus, the original metaphoric senses of tuberculosis and cancer overlap. The meanings of the two diseases as we inherit them today were not really established until the mid-19th century when Virchow founded the science of cellular pathology. That's when these two leading metaphors, consumption for TB and invasion for cancer, became distinct and in many ways contrasting. Given these now mostly contrasting metaphors, uh, it was possible for cancer to inherit the status of the mythic and mythicized disease, the status that tuberculosis had in the 19th century. And since the metaphors since the early 19th century have diverged sharply, uh, they provide schemas that allow us, or indeed oblige us, to perceive similar phenomena in tuberculosis and cancer quite differently. TB is thought to be, in the popular mythology, relatively painless. The main symptoms are coughing of a spasmatic kind with hemorrhaging in the later stages and languidness alternating with febrile activity. That is to say, the notion of behavior is illustrated in the nature of the prototypical TB symptom itself, the cough. There is an ongoing cycle of convulsive spasms alternating with languidness. The patient coughs, then sinks back, recovers breath, breathes more normally, then coughs again. In cancer, the main symptoms are thought to be growths, sometimes a visible growth, a tumor, otherwise inside, invisible, steady. While in TB, the main symptoms are visible, a change in the body, getting thin, a type of behavior, the coughing, 
the languid behavior. In cancer, the main symptoms are thought to be characteristically invisible until the last stage when it is too late. TB makes the body transparent. The x-rays that the patients at the sanatorium in the Magic Mountain carry around in their pockets permit them to see their insides. They have become transparent to themselves. While to have cancer is to become even more than normally opaque to oneself, generally one doesn't know one has cancer. The disease is often discovered in a routine medical checkup and can be quite far advanced without exhibiting any perceptible symptoms. The cancer patient has an opaque body that must be taken to a specialist. What the patient does not perceive, the specialist will discover by analyzing the body to see if the tumor is or is not cancerous. Patients may see their x-rays or even possess them. They don't look at their biopsies. Another contrast. Though the course of both diseases is generally marked by a loss of weight, Getting thin from TB is understood very differently from getting thin from cancer. In TB, the person is consumed. The person burns himself up. In cancer, the patient is invaded by alien cells, which multiply, causing an atrophy or blockage of bodily functions. The cancer patient shrivels, or, which is Alice James's word, or shrinks, the way William Reich described it. TB is disintegration febrilization, the body turning to liquid, the classic image of blood on the handkerchief. It is a disease of liquids, the body turning to phlegm and mucus and finally blood, and a disease of air, of the need for better air. Cancer, by contrast, is a lump, something hard, the body tissue degenerating, turning to stone. Alice James speaks of this unholy granite substance in my breast. But this lump is also alive, a demonic pregnancy, in cancer, one gives birth to one's own death. TB is imagined as a disease of poverty, thin garments, thin bodies, unheated rooms, poor hygiene, inadequate food, Mimi's garret in La Boheme. But the poverty may not be so literal. Marguerite Gautier and Camille has money, lives luxuriously, but still gets TB because inside she is a waif. TB is a disease associated with poverty. Cancer is a disease associated with affluence. TB with the working class, cancer with the middle class. High cancer rates in rich countries follow from too rich a diet. TB comes from deprivation. Cancer comes from a kind of excess in diet or environment. TB is appetite. Cancer is loss of appetite. The undernourished nourishing themselves, alas, to no avail. The overnourished unable to eat. TB is a disease of time. Cancer is a disease of space. TB is the fever that hastens things. TB speeds up a life, highlights it, spiritualizes it. Consumption gallops. As a disease of time, cancer is slow. Until recently, in fact, the standard euphemism, it may, in fact, still be used in a lot of newspapers, the standard euphemism in obituaries for a death from cancer was to say that someone died after a long illness. So the popular image is that cancer works slowly. Every characterization of cancer describes it as slow, measured, but of course incessant and inexorable. And it's interesting that the OED gives as the earliest figurative uses of cancer that they were metaphors for boredom, ennui, and for sloth. These date back from the 14th century.
Metaphorically, cancer is not a disease of time, but rather a disease or pathology of space. Something in the organism shrinks or is invaded or proliferates wildly. All the, the metaphors of cancer refer to topography. The TB patient is thought to be cured, possibly, by change of environment, high, dry places like the desert, the mountains. But no change of environment is thought to help the cancer patient. The fight is all inside one's own body. It may be something in the environment that has caused the cancer, but once it is there, it can't be reversed or diminished by a change to a better or less better, that is, less carcinogenic environment. With TB, one has to travel to find one's health. The TB sufferer is a wanderer in endless search of the, the healthy place. TB, in fact, throughout the 19th century, became a reason for exile. One needs a climate that is dry, not humid, because part of the basic metaphor for TB was that it was a wet disease. The inside is damp and must be dried out. Of course, the most contradictory ideas of the right climate were, in fact, proposed. Keats was told by his doctors to go from London to Rome, uh, hardly the healthiest of climates. But more typically, one thinks of the Mediterranean wanderings of Chopin, the Pacific exile of Robert Louis Stevenson, D.H. Lawrence uh, wandering over several continents. TB was a pretext for bohemianism, indolence, and the kind of invalidism represented by TB in the 19th century, along with beggary, bohemia, and exile, was a common romantic justification for leisure, a way of retiring from the world, dismissing obligations without ha having to take the responsibility for so doing, as Hans Kastorp does in The Magic Mountain. Hans Kastorp comes on holiday from his job to visit his tubercular cousin for two weeks, and during that brief stay, the doctor diagnoses a spot on his lungs. He never goes down and stays seven years. Tubercular people sailed and sought and hoped, curiously innocent, as it seems to us, about their fatal malady. They trusted the world that there was some other place that was good, even if this was bad. Despite the very different ideas about what that great good place could be, all the ideas about the better place for TB sufferers have one thing in common, a rejection of the city as an inherently unhealthy place. In La Traviata, the first thing Armand does after winning Violetta's love at the end of Act I is to move her from wicked Paris to the wholesome country. We see her happy, her health miraculously restored in Act II, and her renunciation of happiness at the end of the act, of that act is tantamount to her leaving the country and returning to the wicked city where her doom is sealed, her TB returns, and she dies. The red flush of the tubercular is an implicit criticism of the debauched, hectic city, a weakness of the lungs, as it was called, for that one needs air, one needs the country. Another contrast, TB is thought in the popular mythology to be relatively painless, while cancer is thought to be invariably, excruciatingly painful. The TB, TB should have been thought to provide uh, an easy death, while cancer is the spectacularly awful one. It may seem uh, rather strange to us. Nevertheless, 19th century literature is full of descriptions of these easy deaths, 
preposterously easy deaths from TB, the lingering sainted death of little Eva in Uncle Tom's cabin is a famous example. In fact, the idea of a decorative death is probably born with uh, metaphors associated with tuberculosis. Her crimson cheeks, this is from Uncle Tom's cabin, her crimson cheeks contrasting painfully with the intense whiteness of her complexion and the thin contour of her limbs and features and her large soul-like eyes fixed earnestly on everyone. That contrasted with the slow, agonizing death, which is always associated with cancer, the death of Eugene Gant's father and Thomas Wolfe's of Time and the River, the death of the sister in Bergman's film Cries and Whispers, deaths in which people are robbed of all capacities of self-transcendence, humiliated by fear and agony. On all these comparisons, I must, of course, uh, make absolutely clear that I'm extrapolating these schemas from the popular mythology of both diseases and not from the facts, though these are things that many people believe are facts. Of course, many people who have TB die in excruciating pain, while some people who have cancer feel little or no pain right at the end. Both the poor and the rich get both TB and cancer. Some TB patients linger for years, while some cancer patients die within a few weeks after the appearance of the first symptom or the unexpected diagnosis. Not everyone who has TB coughs. Indeed, there are many forms of TB, lung, bone, brain, kidney, etc. In fact, TB is almost as fully a system-wide disease as cancer is. But interestingly enough, in all its metaphors, it's identified with only one form, that is pulmonary tuberculosis. The most interesting similarity between the myths of TB and of cancer is that both are or were understood in their heyday as diseases of passion. Once TB was commonly thought to stem from too much passion, as today many people believe that cancer is a disease of repressed passion. These seemingly opposed diagnoses are actually two not so different versions of the same view and deserve, in my opinion, about the same amount of credence. For both accounts of the relation of the disease to a state of passionateness stress the fact of being thwarted, frustrated. The source of much of the current opinion that associates cancer with the repression of feeling is Wilhelm Reich, who defines cancer as, quote, a disease following emotional resignation, a bioenergetic shrinking, a giving up of hope. And Reich illustrated his influential theory with Freud's cancer, which he said was evidence of the fact that Freud, a naturally passionate man, I quote, had to give up as a person. He had to give up his personal delights in his middle years. If my view of cancer is correct, you just give up, you resign, and then you shrink. Tolstoy's Ivan Ilyich is often cited as a case history of the link between cancer and characterological resignation. But in the typical accounts of TB in the 19th century, this feature of resignation is almost always present as well. Mimi and Camille die because of their renunciation of love. They die beatified and beautified by resignation. In fact, the self-consciousness about resignation is characteristic of the slow decline of tuberculars as reported in 19th century fiction. In Uncle Tom's Cabin, little Eva dies with preternatural serenity 
announcing to her father a few weeks before the end, my strength fades away every day, and I know I must go. All the metaphors of TB refer to the question of vitality and its insufficient supply. This is how the Goncourt brothers explain the TB of their friend Murger. He is dying for want of vitality with which to withstand suffering. According to the mythology of TB, there is generally some event, an unhappy passion usually, which provokes, expresses itself in a bout of TB. The TB sufferer is one consumed or dissolved by passion, passion leading to the dissolution of the body. But the passions must be thwarted, the hopes blighted. The passion is usually love, but it could be a political or moral passion. For example, the thwarted political passion of the hero in Turgenev's On the Eve, a young Bulgarian revolutionary in exile. When Insarov realizes he can't return to Bulgaria, he's stuck in Venice, looking across the Adriatic, he sickens with longing and frustration, gets TB, and dies. The imagined link between TB and passion is seconded by the understanding that the symptoms of the disease are an increased passionateness, euphoria, hectic flush, fever, increased appetite. In the Magic Mountain, the patients at the sanatorium eat with gusto not one but two breakfasts every morning. TB was also connected with creativity, a cliché so well-established throughout the 19th century that at the end of the century, one critic suggested that it was the progressive disappearance of TB which accounted for the current decline of literature and the arts. <laughs> the artist is someone weighed down by melancholy, depression, but given to sudden bursts of creative energy. I think that the myths of TB actually constitute the last episode in the long career of the ancient theory of melancholy, which was also the artist's disease, according to the theory of the humors. That traditional idea of melancholy, of course, is a far remove from the crude idea circulating today, which makes of melancholy a simple mood. To come close to the phenomenology of traditional melancholy, we'd have to use our notion, I think, of the manic depressive syndrome. The melancholy character, or the tubercular, was a superior one, sensitive, creative, above all, interesting, a being apart, too interesting ever to be common, but perhaps not quite life-loving enough to survive. To die of TB, wrote those famous tough-minded observers, the Goncourt brothers, to die of TB is to die the death of a sensitive plant, think these are people who saw many people dying of TB and still could write that. But along with this ideal of feelings sublimated to an inhuman, angelic, too fragile degree is the notion that TB creates an exacerbated vitality, that TB is an aphrodisiac, a notion which occurs consistently in the stories of Poe. The, there is a myth that recurs throughout the 19th century, still believed by many people, that tubercular patients experience an increase in sexual desire. And so we have the figure of the tubercular courtesan. Like all really successful metaphors, the metaphor of TB is rich enough to provide for two contradictory applications. It is a way of describing an angel 
someone like little Eva, someone too good to be sexual. It was also a way of describing sexual feeling while removing the onus of libertinism because it is the disease that adds fury to sensuality. But all responsibility is lifted because one is in a state of objective or physiological decadence or deliquescence. One of the more curious chapters in the history of the metaphoric use of disease is that it was possible to view disease romantically. I'm referring, of course, to tuberculosis. And although the cult of TB was a staple of romantic literature in the 19th century, it actually got started much earlier. At least by the mid-18th century, having TB was already an index of a romantic character. It had already acquired those associations of being romantic, of indicating sensitivity, and so forth. For snobs and parvenus and social climbers, starting in the late 18th century, TB was an index of being delicate, genteel, refined, not vulgar, sensitive. It was, if you will, anti-gout. <laughs> Consider the following exchange in Act One, Scene One, of Oliver Goldsmith's satire on life in the provinces, She, she Stoops to Conquer. Mr. Hardcastle is mildly remonstrating with Mrs. Hardcastle about the way she's spoiling her loutish son by a former marriage, Tony Lumpkin. Mrs. Hardcastle, and am I to blame? The poor boy was always too sickly to do any good. A school would be his death when he comes to be a little stronger, who knows what a year or two's Latin may do for him. Mr. Hardcastle, Latin for him, a cat and a fiddle. No, no, the alehouse and the stable are the only two schools he'll ever go to. Mrs. Hardcastle, well, we must not snub the poor boy now, for I believe we shan't have him long among us. Anyone that looks at his face may see he's consumptive. Mr. Hardcastle, aye, if growing too fat be one of the symptoms. Mrs. Hardcastle, he coughs sometimes. Mr. Hardcastle, yes, when his liquor goes the wrong way. <clears throat> Mrs. Hardcastle, I'm actually afraid for his lungs. Mr. Hardcastle, and truly, so am I, for he sometimes whoops like a speaking trumpet. Stage direction by Goldsmith, Tony hallooing behind the scene. Oh, there he goes, a very consumptive figure, truly. Now, this exchange in Goldsmith's play suggests that the fantasy about TB was already a cliché, for Mrs. Hardcastle is nothing but an anthology of cliches, already outmoded cliches, of the smart London world to which she aspires and who were the audience of Goldsmith's play. Goldsmith presumes that the TB myth is already widely known, TB being already the index of being genteel, delicate, sensitive. With the new mobility, social, and geographical of the 18th century, worth and station are not given, they must be asserted, and they were asserted through new attitudes toward clothes and new attitudes toward illness. Both clothes, the outer garment of the body, and illness, now a kind of interior decor, became tropes for a new attitude toward the self and defined new aspirations. As is well known, the cult of TB became then a staple of 19th century romantic literature. Chopin was tubercular at a time when good health was not chic, Camille Saint-Saëns wrote in 1913. It was fashionable to be pale and drained. Princess Belgioso strolled along the boulevards pale as death in person. It's interesting that Saint-Saëns connects an artist, Chopin, with a celebrated femme fatale of the period. 
he's right in doing so because there is a important, an important connection between the cult of TB and the modern idea of fashion. The modern idea of fashion starts with the TB-influenced image of the body. This particular way of looking frail, wan, hollow-eyed, hollow-chested. Indeed, 20th century women's, women's fashion, the cult of thinness, is perhaps the last stronghold of those metaphors associated with the romanticizing of TB in the early 19th century. The whole material ground of the cluster of literary and erotic attitudes known as romantic agony is nothing else but tuberculosis and its transformations through metaphor. The romantic movement managed to transform tuberculosis, a generally incurable, really incapacitating, awful disease, and therefore not romantic, but if you will, baroque, managed to <laughs> transform tuberculosis into a romantic disease. Agony became romantic by giving a stylized account of the preliminary symptomology, the languors and the hectic movements, and simply suppressing the agony. We might reasonably suppose that this romanticization of TB is some kind of merely literary transfiguration of the disease, and that at the time of its great depredations in the 19th century, TB was probably thought to be disgusting, as cancer is now. Surely everyone in the 19th century knew about, for example, the stench and the breath of the consumptive person. But for all the romanticism of TB, we must not, I think, underestimate the opprobrium commonly attached to it throughout the 19th and well into the 20th century until the discovery of penicillin. It was a taboo disease, as much taboo in one sense as cancer is in our own time. And yet, and yet still, the evidence indicates that the cult of TB was not simply an invention of romantic poets and opera librettists, that it was a widespread attitude, that the person dying young of TB really was perceived as a romantic personality. Keats and Shelley may have suffered atrociously from the disease, but Byron is on record as having said that he wished he had tuberculosis, that it was the only thing lacking to make of him the ideal image of a poet. Thoreau, who is not known as a member of the party of the decadents and the Essetes and who suffered from TB, writes in 1852, death and disease are often beautiful, like the hectic glow of consumption. When I was young, wrote Théophile Gautier, I could not have accepted as a lyrical poet anyone weighing more than 99 pounds. <laughs> Note, by the way, that Gautier says lyrical poet. Presumably, prose writers are allowed to be fat. Uh, this attitude, however, did change as the century advanced, looking at his successful contemporaries later in the century, Gautier did come to the conclusion that, quote, the man of genius must be fat. <laughs> she Stoops to Conquer was written in 1773. The play, La Bohème, in 1849. The opera, La Traviata, in 1853. How are we to explain the fact that for almost a century, at the very least between the 1770s and the 1850s, it was possible to so romanticize tuberculosis in spite of the most irrefutable medical and human experience, that the metaphoric meaning of tuberculosis prevailed. Obviously, certain feelings about feeling and about society had to be expressed and were expressed 
preposterous as it seems to us in this compact metaphor, in the metaphor of tuberculosis. The idea that tuberculosis was both a disease of feeling and a spiritual disease, that it showed a certain elevated spiritual state. In Nicholas Nickleby, Dickens describes TB in the following words. It is the dread disease which refines death of its grosser aspect, in which the struggle between soul and body is so gradual, quiet, and solemn, and the result so sure that day by day and grain by grain the mortal part wastes and withers away so that the spirit grows light and sanguine with its lightening load and feeling immortality at hand, deems it but a new term of mortal life. In the process of changing an ideas and codes, it seems that new forms of restraint or abnegation had come to be desired, and these expressed themselves in the form of new ideas of self-denial. It was rude to eat a lot. It was good to look thin. But when these forms of self-denial became no longer less necessary, when consumption, in a more than medical sense, was more acceptable, TB and being sick declined in popularity. Though it did retain most of its romantic attributes through the end of the century and well into ours, for over 100 years, TB remained the favored nice way of killing off a character in a novel or play, a spiritualizing, despiritualizing, refined disease. Uh, and in our own century, there are still many examples of this use. Long Day's Journey into Night is an example of something written in the 20th century, which plays a lot with the connection between tuberculosis and the creative artist. Part of the irony of the Magic Mountain is that Hans Kastorp, a solid burger type, does get TB, is thought to be the artist's disease. Mann's novel is, however, a late decadent commentary on the myth of TB. Nevertheless, it still does partake of many features of the myth, and this burger is indeed eventually refined spiritually by his disease. Tuberculosis is an etherealization of the personality, a turn to the higher self. It expresses an incorrigible fantasy of self-transcendence. If it remains difficult to imagine how the reality of such a dreadful, painful disease could yield to such outrageous distortion under the pressure of romantic ideals, it may be easier to comprehend the process by thinking of a comparable act of distortion under the pressure of a need to express romantic feelings in our own time. The comparable disease for us is not, of course, cancer, which nobody has managed to glamorize or romanticize, though it fulfills in the 20th century some of the ideological functions that TB did in the 19th century. The comparable distortion for us in the 20th century taking a loathsome, painful disease and making it glamorous, romantic, the vehicle of spiritual feelings, is insanity. The myths associated with tuberculosis and insanity have many parallels. In both cases, there is a confinement. Sufferers are put into a sanatorium. Interestingly enough, the same word for the most common euphemism for an insane asylum is sanatorium. Once put away, the patient enters a special world with special rules. Like TB, insanity is a kind of exile. And the metaphor of the trip, the insanity trip, the inner voyage, is an extension of the romantic idea of travel that was associated with tuberculosis. To be cured, the patient has to be taken out of his or her daily world 
Not an accident, I think, that the most common metaphor for an extreme psychological experience viewed positively, procured either through drugs or becoming psychotic, is a trip. In the 20th century, the cluster of metaphors and attitudes attached to tuberculosis split up. They're parceled out to two diseases. Some features of TB, the romantic ones, go to insanity, the idea of being too sensitive, the notion of the sufferer as a hectic, reckless creature of passionate extremes, while other features of TB go to cancer, the hideous, demonic ones, the ones that can't be romanticized. And that's why when we find in cancer quite similar phenomenon that we find in TB, quite a different attitude is generally attached to it, the gray pallor of the TB patient, a pallor so gray it was regularly called corpse-like, nevertheless did seem or was described as being romantic, whereas the gray pallor of the cancer patient seems frightening. The taboo attached to TB, more complex and more ambivalent than the crude horror felt about cancer, even in the case of TB, what made the disease glamorous already made it a curse. It was a disease of character. Therefore, in some sense, the patient was deemed responsible. There was a notion of a taint common in all discourse of, about TB. The idea, quite justified idea, one should add, that TB was hereditary. Think of the disease's frequency in the families of Keats, Trollope, the Brontes, Thoreau. The idea that TB might be hereditary was not felt to be incompatible with the idea that the disease was ultimately individualizing, that it struck a single person and was a judgment on that person. As today, the evidence that there are cancer-prone families and perhaps a hereditary factor in the etiology of cancer is not felt to be incompatible with the feeling that cancer is still an individual disease and strikes an individual punitively, arbitrarily. Both diseases are understood as implying a judgment on the person who gets the disease. One has been singled out. One of the earliest sources that we have for such matters, investigation of metaphors connected with disease, is the Iliad. The Iliad contains a number of ways of understanding disease. Disease is explained as punishment, as demonic possession, and as the result of natural cause and effect. Someone goes outside in a storm and, and catches cold. But the one thing it was not thought to be was expressive. For Homer, disease is either gratuitous or simply appropriate. But with the advent of Christianity comes a much more moralized notion of disease. Indeed, there are moralized notions of everything introduced by Christianity, and one of the consequences is a closer fit between disease and victim that gradually evolves. To the notion of disease as punishment was added the idea that the particular disease fits the particular character who is being punished. For example, Cressid's leprosy in Henderson's The Testament of Cressid and Madame de Merteuil's smallpox in Les Liaisons Dangereuses are not merely punishments for their wanton heroines, but are described as particularly appropriate ones, just humiliations. In the 19th century, the notion that the disease fits the character of the patient changes gradually to the modern notion that the disease expresses the character, is a symbolism of the will. The will exhibits itself as organized body, writes Schopenhauer, and the presence of disease signifies, quote, that the will itself is sick. To be cured of a disease 
Schopenhauer continues, means that the will has succeeded in assuming, quote, dictatorial power in order to subsume the rebellious forces of body. Using a similar image, Bichat, the great 19th century French physician, wrote, health is the silence of organs, disease is their revolt. That is, their language. In disease, the will speaks through the body. Illness is now understood to describe some mental process going on inside the patient and is a gesture of self-revelation. Therefore, the understanding of contemporary ideas about disease, of the ruling metaphors of illness, is inseparable from the history of the modern idea of expressiveness. In the pre-modern era, with its notions of a classically well-balanced character, expressiveness is governed by a sense of limits. There's the notion of an excess of feeling, of an excess of behavior. When Kant uses cancer as a metaphor, it is as a metaphor for excess feeling. Passions are cancers for pure practical reason and often incurable, Kant wrote in 1798. The passions are unfortunate moods that are pregnant with many evils, he added, confirming the underlying metaphoric connection between cancer and pregnancy of a wicked, unwanted sort. When Kant compares passions, i.e. extreme feelings, to cancers, he is, of course, using the pre-modern sense of the disease. His notion is roughly the same as Shakespeare's and the pre-romantic evaluation of passion. But soon, excess feeling was to be viewed much more positively. There is no one in the world less able to conceal his feelings than Emile, said Rousseau, meaning it as a compliment. And as excess feeling becomes something positive, a disease is attached as a trope to the notion of excess feeling. The disease discloses, in spite of the individual's reluctance, what the individual does not want to reveal. The contrast is no longer between moderate passions and excessive ones, but between hidden invisible passions and those which are revealed made visible. The early romantic wanted to probe his spontaneity and prove his divinity by desiring more intensely than others. TB is the disease that makes manifest excess feeling, intense desire. Contemporary romanticism starts from the inverse principle. Now it is others who desire intensely and the hero or heroine oneself has little or no desire at all. Such modern romantic heroes of unfeeling like Rocantin in, in Sartre's Nausea and Merceau in Camus' The Stranger, are later developments of the effectless hero who already appears in 19th century literature, Pechorin in Lermontov's A Hero of Our Time, Stavrogin in The Possessed. But Pechorin and Stavrogin are still heroes in some sense. That is, they're dark, moody, self-absorbed, bitter, self-destructive, tormented by their inability to feel. The modern, effectless anti-hero is a creature of regular routines, prudent, not self-destructive, not moody, dashing, cruel, just dissociated. The ideal candidate, according to contemporary mythology, for cancer. In the ancient notion of disease as a judgment by the gods or God, judgment can be leveled on the collectivity the plague in Book One of the Iliad that Apollo inflicts upon the Achaeans in punishment for Agamemnon's abduction of Chryses' daughter, the plague that strikes Thebes because of the polluting presence of a sinner, Oedipus, or it can strike a single person, the stinking wound in Philoctetes' foot. 
The medieval experience of leprosy and the plague was still firmly tied to these notions of pollution and punishment, and people invariably looked for a scapegoat external to the stricken community. Unprecedentedly savage massacres of Jews took place everywhere in plague-stricken Europe during 1347 and 48, virtually stopped the week that the plague began to recede. But in the 19th century, TB, and in the 20th century, cancer, are forms of self-judgment. They are viewed as forms of internal failure. Both TB and cancer are understood to be diseases of character, and not simply diseases which fit the character, like Cressid's leprosy, Madame de Merteuil's smallpox. They are produced by the character. The romantic idea that the disease expresses the character is supplemented by a new idea that the character causes the disease. Character moves inward, striking and blighting the deepest cellular recesses. This myth has been particularly tenacious in the case of the two diseases I've been discussing. In both TB and cancer, it is thought that the body has passed judgment upon the character of the person, that one has deserved one's disease. These modern diseases are viewed as forms of judgment of the self by the self, as forms of self-betrayal. In a letter written in 1922 to Max Brod, Kafka summed up his TB in a memorable phrase, my head has made an appointment with my lungs behind my back. <laughs> One is betrayed by one's body, as Mann depicts the middle-aged heroine of his late novel, The Black Swan, who first takes her hemorrhage as a return of sexual fertility and then discovers it to be the symptom of incurable cancer. Freud was very beautiful when he spoke. Then it hit him here, just in the mouth, and that is where my interest in cancer began, wrote Wilhelm Reich. He was very unhappily married, Reich said about Freud. I don't think his life was happy. He lived in a very calm, quiet, decent family life, but there was little doubt that he was very much dissatisfied genitally. Both his resignation and his cancer were evidence of that. In the pre-modern view of disease, the role of character was confined to one's behavior once one had the disease. It was not viewed as the cause of the disease. The classical accounts of disease stress the deteriorating effect of the disease upon character, even when in more secular accounts, the disease is not thought to be caused by corruption or pollution in the community. Its onset is nevertheless generally connected with a moral con corruption made evident or manifest by the collective ravages of the disease. Insofar as the disease is a judgment on the society, it is occasion for revealing how badly people can behave. Thucydides describes the plague as producing disorder, lawlessness in Athens. The pleasure of the moment took the place both of honor and expedience, he writes. And the whole point of Boccaccio's description of the great plague of the 14th century in the opening pages of the Decameron is how badly people behaved in Florence once the plague had begun to spread. Manners and morals declined. No loyalty or fealty was left unviolated. In the modern diseases, the judgment is upon the individual. It is because of a flaw in character that the person contracted the disease. And perhaps in compensation for this, the account of character during the course of the disease is usually viewed positively. The disease is viewed as an occasion to rise to new moral heights for those characters already depicted as virtuous. 
is particularly characteristic of TB deaths in 19th century fiction and goes with the spiritualizing of disease and sentimentalizing of uh, its horrors, particularly characteristic of the image of TB. Or if one's character is less than sentimentalized, the disease is viewed as a final occasion to at last behave well, to have an insight into the mysterious limitations in one's character which produce the disease. Although it's too late, of course, to correct the character in order to roll back the disease, there is the final revelation. If the disease is caused by a lie to the self, the experience of the disease is described as a revelatory experience. Thus, the lying which surrounds Ivan Ilyich's slow death from cancer, the fact of his dying being unmentioned by and unmentionable to his wife and children, that lie reveals to him the whole lie of his preceding life. Only when he is dying, in Tolstoy's account, is he in a state of truth. The 60-year-old bureaucrat in Kurosawa's film, Ikiru, when he learns he has stomach cancer and has one year to live, quits his job and decides to do one non-bureaucratic constructive action for the community. Both TB and cancer then are understood to be diseases of character expressive of and produced by defects of character. And there is the myth of the TB characterology, hectic, burning the candle at both ends, reckless, overenergetic, which is the perfect complement to the current myth of the cancer characterology, someone sexually repressed, inhibited, polite, methodical, unspontaneous, incapable of expressing anger. In both cases, as I say, there is the idea that one is responsible for one's disease, that one has deserved one's disease. Both are diseases of character. But the cancer imagery is surely far more punishing. Given the romantic values we use to judge character and disease in this culture, much glamour attaches to a disease which comes from being too full of passion, which is thought to come from being too full of passion, but there's only opprobrium to a disease thought to stem from the repression of emotion. The view of cancer in Reich, and even before him in Georg Grodek, this view, which has been spread by many writers influenced by Grodek and Reich, uh, is a completely moralized punishing notion of the disease. The Reichian theory condemns the cancer patient, condescends, expresses pity, uh, but by vitalist standards, the cancer patient is regarded as one of life's losers. Whereas for the disease that claimed the likes of Keats, Poe, Emily Bronte, Kafka, and D.H. Lawrence, there is pathos, but no contempt. Current psychological or psychosomatic theories of cancer powerfully contribute to making cancer a more shameful disease than even TB was, and to making cancer patients feel consciously or unconsciously guilty for getting cancer. The diseases seem to have contrasting rhetorics, contrasting metaphors in the way that I have been describing, but what I want to suggest is that many of the features of TB have in fact been passed on to cancer. Uh, first of all, the, as I said, the taboo nature of the disease. Second, the idea that it's a disease of character. Third, that it has to do with melancholy, frustration, and repression. For although we do tend to regard TB as a disease of passion, in fact, it was also understood as a disease of repression. The hero of Gide's novel, The Immoralist, paralleling what Gide perceived to be his own story, gets TB because he has repressed his true sexual nature. And when Michel accepts life, his true sexual nature, he recovers. 
With this scenario today, however, Michel would probably have to get cancer. For novels placed under the aegis of an older romanticism, there is, however, one kind of cancer that can be used, just like TB, as a disease that cuts off a young life, since it's unlikely that that would happen as a result of getting TB now, thanks to penicillin. That disease is leukemia, which is the white, clean form of cancer, much less taboo. The mythology surrounding the death of the young pianist Dinu Lipati in 1950, just weeks before his death from leukemia, repeats many of the stories told about the last performances of Paganini in the 19th century, weakened and dying from TB. Leukemia is felt to be like TB. It's the form of cancer that is most felt to be like TB because there's no tumor. The young heroine of Eric Siegel's love story doesn't have stomach cancer. She has leukemia, which is this white, clean form of cancer. Syphilis in the 19th century was also like TB, taboo, a scourge, unmentionable. But unlike TB, it was not mysterious. It was understood to have an entirely mechanical causation. There's no syphilitic personality type in the sense of someone thought to be more likely than others to get it, as there was or is thought to be for TB and cancer. You contracted it by having sexual relations with someone you shouldn't have. To get syphilis implied a moral judgment on the person who got it, but not a psychological judgment. It was a social, not a psychological disease. The syphilitic personality type was someone who had the disease, not someone who was likely to get it. The terror of syphilis lay in the disproportion between the cause, the sin, and the disease, the punishment, as in Charles-Louis Philippe's novel, Boubou of Montparnasse. You went to bed with the wrong person once, and your whole life was ruined. And from that brief moment came illness, celibacy, madness, and death. Increasing the horror was the possibility that you could be completely innocent, and yet, because your father had sinned, inherit the disease, as Oswald does in Ibsen's Ghosts. It was a disease passed on to innocent children, uh, there is horror aplenty in syphilis, but no mystery. Syphilis is all causality. That is, it's entirely mechanical. In contrast, TB and cancer propose the question of the organism. That is the question of energy. These are diseases which are not conceived of mechanical, but in vitalist terms. They have to do with the will. TB, as I've said, being a question of too much passion, which is thwarted, and cancer of repressed passion. Generally, cancer is thought to be an inappropriate disease for a romantic character because the characterology assigned to it, someone repressed, stiff, inhibited, is the opposite of romantic. But in fact, this is a very modern development as we have come to view depression as unromantic. And repression was also often thought to be a cause of TB. In fact, the widespread speculation about the emotional causes of cancer repeat many of the same psychological features which were once thought to cause TB until Koch discovered the tubercle bacillus in 1882, of course. It's not these psychological features which have changed, but our evaluation of them. To support the now widely held theory that cancer has emotional causes, there is a whole literature, a great deal of research going on, which results in studies of the following sort that which is, uh, it's said that 30 patients who have cancer, of 30 patients who have cancer, 23 report themselves as being depressed or unsatisfied with their lives and have in their past history some painful emotional event or separation from a loved one or death of a parent. And I would suggest that of 30 people who do not have cancer, 23 would probably also report uh, depressing emotions and past traumas. And often older medical and philosophical uh, sources are uh, combed for statements which support this modern research on the emotional causes of cancer. 
Uh, thus, you repeatedly read in this literature the same people being quoted, the second century physician Galen, who commented that, quote, melancholy women were more likely to get breast cancer than sanguine women, or the English surgeon of a, a century and a half ago, uh, Sir Astley Cooper, who said that grief and anxiety are among the most frequent causes of breast cancer. In 1870, Sir James Paget wrote that he had little doubt that, quote, mental depression is a weighty additive to the other influences favoring the development of a cancerous constitution. But if one looks back at the literature on TB, I want to emphasize, one finds exactly the same theory and put in exactly the same terms. In his Morbidus Anglicus, published in 1672, Gideon Harvey declared that melancholy and color are the sole cause of TB, for which he used the metaphoric term corrosion. The fifth edition of a standard textbook, uh, Flint and Welch's The Principles and Practice of Medicine, 1881, gives as the causes of tuberculosis, and I quote, hereditary disposition, unfavorable climate, sedentary outdoor life, defective ventilation, and depressing emotions. The entry was changed for the sixth edition for the following year, the year after the fifth edition of this standard book. In 1882, Robert Koch published his paper announcing the discovery of the tubercle bacilli and demonstrating that they were the primary cause of the disease. The large literature on the psychological causes of cancer in isolation, depression, melancholy, repression finds an exact counterpart in the 19th century literature on the psychological causes of TB in isolation repression, melancholy, depressing emotions. I think that there's only a very general truth behind all the evidence that is being offered and continues to be offered in support of this hypothesis. The truth is that depressing emotions render one susceptible to disease, generally. But I would wager that the theory's specific application, which relates cancer to depressing emotions, will prove to be no more tenable than the theory was when it was applied to tuberculosis. As such theories vanished when, in 1882, Koch discovered the tubercle bacillus, so the currently fashionable theories about the emotional causation of cancer will vanish when its exact physical etiology is discovered. In the classical framework in which disease was once viewed, to be healthy was to keep a proper balance. It was a question of moderation, of prudence. Now disease is viewed in a Baroque framework concerns the explosion of energy. There is a melodramatization of disease, which means that to be a real disease, it must be fatal. TB and cancer are viewed as diseases of the will. There is a continual concern with ideas of strength and weakness. They are described as pathologies of energy. Their metaphors, I suggest, represent a fear of energy or feeling of the havoc that it wreaks. TB is organized around the image of consumption, an economistic idea about energies. One has two choices, to consume or to conserve. The assumption is that one has a limited amount of energy which must be properly spent. If one spends one's energy recklessly or imprudently, one will run out of energy, a vital force, according to this model. Then the body will start consuming itself. One will be consumed. One will waste away. In cancer, formerly parallel phenomena are described by quite different metaphor. One is not consumed, one is invaded. The body is taken over by alien cells. 
If TB is conceived as a disease of the sick self, cancer is a disease of the other. And immunologists call cancer cells non-self. In cancer, one loses ground to the invading force. The barbarian is within, or the thing, the it, the blob that's landed from outer space. An unregulated growth takes place of an entirely negative or pathological variety, and eventually one shrinks, shrivels, etc. The metaphors for both diseases are economic metaphors. TB, called consumption, is a disease of 19th century early capitalism whose concerns center around the activities of spending, saving, wasting, squandering, strict accounting, discipline. And the images that describe TB sum up the negative behavior of the 19th century homo economicus, that is, consumption, wasting away, squandering your vitality or resources. TB is the model disease for a society whose economy depends on the rational limitation of desires. Cancer is the disease of 20th century capitalism whose concerns center around the activities of expansion, buying on credit, creation of new needs, the problem of satisfaction and dissatisfaction, speculation, a society and an economy which encourage consumption and discourage saving. Cancer is therefore quite logically described in images that sum up the anxieties of this 20th century homo economicus. Anxieties about abnormal growth, about repression of energy, i.e. refusal to consume or spend, and about incursions by barbarian invaders. Cancer is the model disease for a society whose economy depends on the irrational indulgence of desires. If the language of TB is an economistic language, the language of cancer is a militarized one, a language of colonial or imperial wars, Cells are invasive. Cancers colonize from the original site to far parts of the body. It's the, it's the imagery of war. The prospects are remission, regression, but invariably the cancer cells regroup and mount a new assault upon the organism. One speaks of the fight against cancer, and the language for treatment, radiation, uh, chemotherapy is also highly militarized, particularly uh, chemotherapy which uses some of the very same language as the army chemical warfare. You kill cancer cells without its hoped killing the patient. Each new form of treatment is described as more powerful, like a new weapon system. In the language used in cancer hospitals, there is everything but the body count. One speaks of the crusade against cancer. People who have, who have cancer are called cancer victims. If cancer is not described in the language of colonial or imperial wars, it's the, it is described as part of the world of science fiction. As TB is represented as the spiritualizing of consciousness, cancer is understood as the mindless, overwhelming, or obliterating of consciousness by an it. It's worth noting, I think, uh, that Reich, who did more than anyone else to disseminate the psychological theory of cancer, also spoke of cancer as a cosmic disease. When it's not being explained away as something psychological, cancer is being magnified and projected into a metaphor for the human condition, the biggest enemy, the farthest goal. Thus, Nixon's bid to match Kennedy's promise of conquering the moon was appropriately enough to conquer cancer. The use 
of illnesses as a metaphor for political disorder is one of the oldest notions in political philosophy, as old as the analogy of the polis to an organism. If it is natural to compare the polis to an organism, it is natural, it seems natural, to compare civil disorder to an illness. But the classical formulations from Plato to Hobbes, which analogize a political problem to an illness, presuppose the medical and political idea of balance, humors. Illness comes from imbalance. The prognosis is always, in principle, optimistic. If the right balance, that is the right hierarchy, can be re-established, the patient, i.e. the society, will be cured. In traditional political theory, society never, by definition, catches a fatal disease. Even the disease imagery in Shakespeare and other Elizabethans, as virulent as it is and full of a Baroque horror of disease, still presupposes the possibility of righting the imbalance or excess. The disease imagery in Hamlet, Coriolanus, and As You Like It, does not make the distinction between an infection, a sore, an abscess, an ulcer, and what we would call a tumor. Shakespeare groups together ulcers, abscesses, and cancers as forms of infection and as metaphors for imbalance. And when the the disease imagery is used by Machiavelli, the presumption is also that the disease can be cured. Machiavelli wrote, consumption in the commencement is easy to cure and difficult to understand. But when it has neither been discovered in due time nor treated upon a proper principle, it becomes easy to understand and difficult to cure. The same thing happens in state affairs by foreseeing them at a distance, which is only done by men of talents, the evils which might arise from them are soon cured. But when, from want of foresight, they are suffered to increase to such a height that they are perceptible to everyone, there is no longer any remedy. Machiavelli assumes that TB is a disease which can be treated, though only when its symptoms are still scarcely visible. The more apparent it is, the more fatal it's likely to be. The course of the disease is not inexorable, Given proper foresight, the patient can be cured, and of course, the same, by analogy to disturbances in the body politic. His use of a disease metaphor in his political analysis is a call to foresight. The disease is not, in fact, a metaphor about society at all. It is a metaphor about foresight, as prudence is, as foresight, rather, is needed to fight serious disease, so foresight is needed to fight uh, disorder. But in the modern period, the use of disease imagery in political rhetoric has other, much darker implications, as classical theories of the polis have gone the way of classical theories of disease, so a Baroque idea of politics has been complemented by a Baroque idea of disease, and the emphasis is all on diseases which are loathsome and fatal. This gives the use of disease imagery in politics a different and much more pointed Character Now, to describe a political event or situation in terms of illness is to impute guilt, to prescribe punishment. Modern totalitarian movements, whether of the right or the left, have been peculiarly and, I think, revealingly prone to disease imagery. Hitler first described the Jews as the source of a, a tuberculosis, a racial tuberculosis among the nations, then afterward repeatedly analogized them to a cancer that must be excised. 
disease metaphors were a staple of Bolshevik polemics, and the most gifted of all polemicists, Leon Trotsky, used them with the greatest profusion, particularly after his banishment from the Soviet Union at the end of the 20s. Stalinism was called by Trotsky a cholera, a syphilis, and a cancer. To use only diseases identified as fatal for imagery and politics gives the metaphor quite another character than when one has seen it earlier in Plato and Hobbes and Machiavelli. Now to liken a situation to a fatal illness, a fatal or shameful or disgusting illness, ups the ante extraordinarily. This is particularly true of the use of cancer imagery. To describe a phenomenon as a cancer is a kind of incitement to violence. It amounts to saying, first of all, that the event or situation is unqualifiedly and unredeemably wicked. It is, as I said, perhaps not surprising that Hitler's first recorded speech, this anti-Semitic diatribe delivered in 1919, which called uh, the Jews the racial tuberculosis of Europe, it's not surprising that at that moment tuberculosis for Hitler still retained its prestige as the overdetermined, culpabilized illness of the 19th century. But Hitler quickly modernized his rhetoric and in thereafter calling the Jews the cancer of Europe, found an imagery much more apt for his purposes. For to treat a cancer, as uh, Nazi polemicists never stopped saying in the 1930s, one must cut out much of the healthy tissue around it. The very imagery of cancer prescribes radical treatment in contrast to the soft treatment for TB the difference, if you will, between sanatoria, that is exile, and surgery, that is crematoria. It could even be argued that cancer metaphors are in themselves lethal. The use of cancer in political discourse encourages fatalism and severe measures, as well as a not negligible thing, reinforcing the popular perception that the disease itself is necessarily fatal. The concept of disease is never innocent. But in mentioning Nazis, of course, I don't mean to suggest or that they are particularly a product, such metaphors of the right. If Hitler called the Jews the cancer of Europe, Trotsky called Stalinism the cancer of Marxism, and from the opposite side of the spectrum, Marinetti called communism an example of a German cancer, an exasperation of the bureaucratic cancer that has always wasted humanity. This was in 1920. John Dean called Watergate the cancer on the presidency. An officer with the Christian Lebanese rightist forces uh, besieging the Palestinian refugee camp of Tal Zatar in August 1976 called the camp a cancer in the Lebanese body. Uh, Indeed, the cancer metaphor seems difficult to eschew for those who wish to register moral indignation. D.H. Lawrence called masturbation the cancer of civilization. (laughs) Neil Asherson wrote in 1969 that the Slansky affair was and is a huge cancer in the body of the Czechoslovak state and nation. Simon Lays calls, he speaks of the Maoist cancer gnawing away at the face of China. And I myself once wrote, in the heat of despair over America's war in Vietnam, that the white race is the cancer of human history. What all of these metaphoric uses of cancer imply is, first of all, a kind of moral judgment which must be, by definition, simplistic. 
This does not mean that severe moral judgments are not possible. Stalinism is something to be condemned, and I don't retract my condemnation of white nation imperialism, in which context I regrettably used the cancer metaphor 10 years ago. Quite understandably, there is a problem about our idea of radical or absolute evil, and this gives rise to a search for adequate metaphors. But in now in a more chastened and reflective moment in my own life, it seems clear that the cancer image is not the one uh, that one would find most suitable. We shall have to, I think, find another way of talking about what is absolutely to be condemned. For the price of this way, its intellectual and human limits are too great. The cancer image is not only a call to simplification, which, as I've said, is something to be resisted. It is, in most cases, an implicit call to violence, a justification of fanaticism and of radical measures. It might be instructive to compare the image of cancer with that of gangrene, which has some of the same metaphoric properties. It starts from nothing. Uh, it spreads and it's disgusting. One would suppose it would be laden with everything a polemicist would want, and indeed it was used in one celebrated example as the image for the French use of torture in Algeria in the, France, the French practice of, of torture in Algeria in the 1950s. The title of the famous book exposing that torture was called La Gangrene. But there's a large difference between the cancer and the gangrene metaphor. For one thing, causality is clear with gangrene. It's an external thing, a scratch while cancer is internal as well as external. Second, gangrene is not as total. It only leads to amputation, less often to death, while cancer is presumed to lead always to death. Not gangrene, then, and not the plague, despite the notable attempts by such different writers as Artaud, Reich, and Camus to impose that one on us as a metaphor for our dismal condition. But cancer remains the most radical of all disease metaphors, and it's just because it is so radical that we should be wearing, wary of using it. With the distinctive crusade rhetoric attached to cancer, the idea that one must fight it rather than treat it, with the fatalistic implications that cancer has, cancer being understood to be equivalent to death, and the idea that only the most radical measures are effective, with the militaristic hype that attaches to the description of and treatment of cancer, it is a particularly dangerous metaphor for the peace-loving. It is, of course, more than likely that the language about cancer will change in the coming years and must change decisively, I would suggest, when the disease is finally understood and the rate of cure becomes much better. It is already changing as new forms of treatment are developed, as, for instance, chemotherapy more and more supplants radiation in the treatment of cancer patients, and the perspective is that the final form of treatment already in use in a supplementary capacity will be some kind of immunotherapy. It's not impossible that someday people will be inoculated against cancer. And the language is already starting to change in certain medical circles where doctors are concentrating on a steep buildup of the body's natural immunodefensive system against cancer. When the language changes from an aggressive, militarized language to one that centers on the body's natural defenses, the cancer imagery will already be partly demythicized. And it may then be possible to compare something to a cancer without implying either a totally fatalistic diagnosis or 
a rousing call to action to fight by any means whatsoever a lethal, insidious, hateful phenomenon. Then perhaps it will be morally permissible, as it is not now, to use cancer as a metaphor. But at that time, perhaps nobody will want to compare anything awful to cancer anymore, since the interest of the metaphor for us is precisely that it does refer to a disease so overladen with mystification, so haunted by the fantasy of inescapable fatality. Since our views about cancer and the metaphors we have imposed on it are so much a vehicle for our own anxieties, for our shallow attitude toward death, for our problems about feeling, for our reckless, improvident responses to our real problems of growth, for our inability to construct an advanced industrial society which properly regulates consumption, and for our justified fears of the increasingly violent course of history. The cancer metaphor will be made obsolete, I would predict, long before the problems for which it has been so persuasive a vehicle will be resolved. This podcast has been brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU in conjunction with the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. Our producer is Ben Branstein. Our thanks to Uli Baer and for their technical and design wizardry, Aaron Dowdy and Selena Lacazzi. For more information or if you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at nyihumanities.org. That's all one word. Again, that's nyihumanities.org.